your host, Dmitry Filipovich. Welcome to the Hockey PDOcast. My name is Dmitry Filipovich, and joining me in studio is my good buddy Harmon Dial. Harm, we've got you on a Bo Horvat retainer. So when there's news, like yesterday's trade, I throw up the bat signal, you come in and we talk about it. That's just how this works. Good to have you back, man. Yeah, it's crazy how often the Canucks have been front page headline material worthy around the NHL. I've never seen anything like it. We're talking about a span of just over half a season and how many times have the Canucks been the number one story around the league. And yeah, I mean, trading Bo Horvat, that's uh, that's that's going to cause uh, shockwaves. Yeah. Well, I guess it's selfishly, it's a, it's a good year to start a daily hockey radio show in Vancouver. Yeah. It's, uh, it's worked out well for me from a content perspective. So I'm personally relieved as well um, that this trade came through when it did. It all, you know, last time we spoke before the weekend, it seemed like an inevitability. Yeah. I think there was like general belief around the league, though, that we just wouldn't see any deals, especially of any magnitude until the deadline itself because of the cap dynamics with everyone so tied up against it, everyone trying to bank space and facilitate some of these deals. And so everyone was like, all right, this is going to be a pretty boring February here until we get to March and then the floodgates will open. And so at least now we have like a pretty tasty trade to sink our teeth into and discuss and get it out of the way now. And then hopefully it still will trickle down uh, over the next four or five weeks here as well. So we're going to do, we're going to spend today's show just fully breaking down this trade, unpacking it from every single angle we can think of. It's going to be fun. Hopefully people will enjoy it. Hopefully we'll provide some some kind of like food for thought that people haven't considered. Because obviously when a trade of this magnitude happens, everyone's doing their trade grades, trade breakdowns. Yeah. Like, oh, think about this, that, whatever. We'll hopefully provide some new kind of unique stuff that people haven't thought about so far. So let's start from the perspective of Bull Horvat, the player and the contributor. Because I think that's probably the most interesting or most pertinent as like a immediate you know, actionable, consequential piece of information, right? Like Boho Rat, what are you getting from him? What's he going to be the rest of the way? And there's been a lot of talk about his shooting percentage, of course, right? Like he's shooting, what, nearly 22% so far yeah. this season. He's already scored 31 goals, which matches his career high that he set last year in 70 games. And so everything he does from here on out is going to set a new personal best for him. And when you combine the fact that he's never really had this type of offensive production before with a very conveniently timed contract year, which he's in, for a player who's turning 28 soon and is shooting 22%, as I said, I think, like, in, understandably, people's sort of, like, eyebrows get raised in terms of red flag potential and people getting carried away about what type of player Bo Horvat really is. So I, I think there's a really interesting discussion to be had there specifically about what the expectations are for him moving forward. Because I think there is some like important context that seems to be missed in a lot of the evaluations of Bull Horvat. It's purely like, he's shooting 22%. This is this is not going to continue. And I don't think anyone is suggesting that he is a 22% shooter moving forward. But let's get into the, the player itself, what you've seen from him so far this year, maybe changes he's made to his game and sort of what our expectations should be for the next handful of years for Bull Horvat. Yeah, so right off the bat with Horvat, he finds so many looks from high-quality areas of the ice whether it's tips rebounds net front like he's really mastered that sort of inner slot area both in terms of winning being able to sort of win pucks there because because of his frame but also just generally his anticipation and being able to find the soft spots so he, like he's very he's not a guy who's just firing shots off the wing right 
and he's he's getting lucky that a lot of them are going in. He he consistently generates high danger chances, and if you go back to his track record before, he's always been a guy that's been among the individual expected goal leaders uh, around the league, which again tells you his ability to f- to find and generate chances from the most dangerous parts of the ice. So, of course, twenty two percent or whatever it is right now is inflated. It's going to come back down to earth, but he naturally profiles to me as a sort of player who can sustain a higher than league average shooting percentage over um, sort of moving forward and especially as we've seen him evolve and really improve in a lot of those areas our our good pal Thomas Drantz Mm -hmm. did a great breakdown about a month ago detailing the work that he did with Adam Oates and making a lot of changes so there has been legitimate improvement that's led to this breakout it isn't just oh, look at this 22% shooter. He's never going to be this again. Of course, I don't think anybody's expecting Bo to be a 50-plus goal scorer moving forward, but I kind of view him as the sort of player who can be like a true talent 35-goal guy yeah. who obviously... There's going to be fluctuations. Can, yeah. There's going to be fluctuation, right? So that's generally how I view him. And the example that kind of comes to, comes to mind for me, and it's not, it's not that they're stylistically the same players, but you look at the type of out, uh, outburst that Chris Kreider had mm-hmm. last year, where Kreider was consistently scoring around the 30-goal per 82-game sort of pace, similar to Bo. Um, and then last season, he broke out with 52 goals. This year, he's right around the mid-30 range in yep. terms of what he's going to produce at goals-wise. That's kind of what I'd expect from Horvat moving forward. And in terms of his goal scoring, he's... A big part of his production is going to be the Islanders have one of the worst power plays in the league. In Vancouver, they, despite having a lot of shortcomings, had a really good power play. Mm. Horvat makes a lot of his hay from the bumper spot there. So you're going to need to make sure that you have a playmaker on the left on the left half wall that can consistently set him up and that he's not the only threat yeah. there because one of the benefits was Elias Pettersson on the right flank. He was essentially like a decoy where penalty killers were sort of drifting off to his mm-hmm. side, which left more open ice in the middle for Horvat. Uh, and that's obviously how, you know, a big, a big chunk of his production has come as well. The Kreider comp, like, st- statistically is eerie. Like, yeah. if you look at the three seasons for each guy prior to their, like, going nuclear from a goal-scoring perspective, they literally each scored 72 goals in, like, 192 to 195 games and shot, like, 14 or 15%. Yeah. So that was like their baseline of like what they were clicking at for three straight years. And then Kreider scores 52. As you mentioned, he shoots 20%. He's debt back down to a 36-goal pace this year, which is an elevation from where he was previously, sure. right? It signals like something changed, the league, the environment around him, of course, everyone's scoring more in the league. So I think take that into account. For Horvat, similarly, like he's going up to this pace now, I'd expect 35 to 40 in terms of his true talent yeah. level moving forward. You know, what's interesting is, you mentioned Drance's piece on, on Adam Oates. I think Horvat himself deserves a lot of credit for creating his own luck here, yeah. right? Like, in this, in one sense, it is contract year fueled, but I think it's because he realized that he was at a very important point of his career. Yeah, and he was like, "How can I maximize my earning power and get better at this point of at this stage of my, you know, prime where I really can make a difference moving forward?" And he changes the curve of his stick, right? He goes. He stops shooting wrist shots as much and goes to more of like a snapshot type of release. Starts working with Oates, all of a sudden gets to these areas and really maximizes like his goal scoring output from these specific regions. And so I I think that's an important uh, piece of context here. I watched all 28 of his non-empty net goals 
so far this year, 12 were deflections or tip-ins. Yeah. Five were rebounds around the net. Six were sort of like uh, odd man rush or breakaways for him. And then five were those bumper plays where he gets a one-timer generally from JT Miller and he just hammers it home, right? I guess the question is, we don't necessarily know how sustainable being a the league's best sort of tipper and deflector from that area is, right? Like, it, it seems like if you're good at it, you probably should do it year over year. He had three of those goals last year, two the year before. So this is kind of a new thing for him. Now there are technical changes, which suge- might suggest that this is just like a new sort of standard for him. But I don't know. Is he going to be the next Joe Pavelski and keep scoring 15 to 20 tip goals every year? Or is this just kind of a one-off and he's going to get it back to 5-6 next year and all of a sudden his goal scoring will come down with it? I think he's definitely above average in that area, yeah. just in general watching him and being able to cover him on a day-to-day basis, understanding how much work that he's put in and seeing him at the end of practices, really honing in on some of those skills. With that said, I'm not expecting him to necessarily be among the league leaders moving forward, which kind of follows with this theme of he's probably he's going to be better in a higher goal scorer than he's been previously in his career. That much you can tell. Even last season, 31 goals in 70 games or whatever it was, and he got injured right at the end of, end of the season when he was on an absolute tear. There's been a, a natural momentum building for him as a goal scorer. He seems to be getting better each and every year. But yeah, again, I, I I think we'll see some level of regression there. Well, we should say he's four years younger than Kreider, I believe, and also plays yeah. a more premium position. So I think those two are important factors in acknowledging yeah. his value. Um, okay, let's shift to the Islanders then and kind of tie in Horvat, the player, into why they did this trade. I think it's pretty obvious in terms of why they identified him as a player who fits a need, right? I, I think... Seeing all the coverage of this trade, it's fascinating to me how few people have, I guess, been following the New York Islanders this season. Because every piece of content has been, well, you know, they desperately need a goal scorer because they're a very defensively stingy team and they struggle to score goals. And that just has not been the case this year, right? Under Lane Lambert, after the coaching change, the only teams who give up more high danger chances than they do are the Ducks, the Coyotes, and and the Canadians. The only goalies, according to Sport Logic, that have faced more inner slot shots than Ilya Sorokin have been John Gibson, Karel Vimelka, and UC Soros. Like, they give up a lot defensively, and that's not by accident. They've identified that against most good teams, they're at a talent deficit offensively, so they're really playing a riskier brand of hockey. They're trying to manufacture cheap goals where they can in the offensive zone, and I think that's a good strategy. Like The they have blue the- line also was, at one point, I don't know if it's still true, they had the most goals yeah. from defensemen, yeah. which... I mean, after scoring like none after, last year. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I, I think all of that is fine. Like they have the, the guy who's playing as the best goalie in the world right now. They're also up to 14th and five on five goal scoring. So like I'll put all of that together. And the only real issue with this team has been the power play, which you mentioned. They're 31st. Only the Canadians score fewer goals per minute than they do. And that's a real problem. And so Horvat, I think, provides a lot of power play utility for them, not only from a goal scoring perspective where he has 11 power play goals this year. But also, I think, ironically, let me take you on a journey here. In the in the, in the face-off circle, I actually think he provides utility. I know people listening to the PDO guest right now are like, is this guy seriously going to be talking about the value of face-offs? And I understand. Like, raw face-off numbers are wildly overrated, blown out of proportion, not nearly as important as you'd be led to believe. Situationally, though, especially on the power play to start a two-minute power play, Sheesh. it's very valuable. No one is denying that, right? Like, it's the difference between getting set up right away off a clean draw and getting into your formation 
versus going back, regrouping, having to try to re-enter. If you're a less skilled team, you're probably not going to enter on the first try. You're going to keep having to go back and regroup. You waste a minute, all of a sudden your top unit is coming off, second unit is coming on, haven't accomplished anything, right? Horvat, amongst all centers have taken at least 50 draws on the power play this year, is second in terms of win rate at 65.4%. I think only Jonathan Taves is ahead of him in that regard. And so from that perspective, I actually do think he's going to help this power play quite a bit because I think he's going to allow them to spend more time in the offensive zone trying to make stuff happen. Now, if it's going to lead to more goals, we'll see. As you mentioned, I think the weaponry around him is significantly different on the power play on the island compared to with the Canucks. But yeah, whether it's Barzal trying to get it to him in that bumper slot or him posting up in front of the net and trying to tip Noah Dobson point shots, like I think he's going to find a way to still create on the power play. And so you put all that together, and I do think he's... I think he's going to meaningfully address what looks like their biggest need as a team, I think. For sure. Especially because how long have the Islanders kind of been looking for that sort of next top offensive uh, weapon, even despite the the increase we've seen in their goal production so far, especially even even considering the potential fit at 5-5. Um, five and, five. and it's going to be interesting to see with their center depth who shifts is it going to be Barzell? Is it going to be Nelson? Who's going to play with Horvat? Mm-hmm. What exactly is the fit at five on five? I'm really interested to see because I really like the idea of um, of Barzell and, and Horvat playing together because right. the one thing that Horvat is not like a traditional center at is his puck transportation. Mm-hmm. Most centers like to come low and slow in in the, the defensive end and help engineer breakouts but when you watch Horvat play he often he often almost looks like a winger in that he wants to be the first guy once his team has picked up the puck in the defensive zone fleeing up the ice having someone feed him that pass to then create something off the rush which given Vancouver's environment didn't happen very often because they didn't yeah he wasn't receiving too many tape to tape stretch passes he wasn't unfortunately but again that's more Vancouver than it is uh than it is Horvat but you look at his zone exit numbers over the years, zone entry numbers are a little bit better, but Horvat's never really been this big puck transporter. And if you're pointing out one deficiency in him as a player overall, the common criticism has been that he's not a natural setup man, yep. not really a distributor. That's where Barzell ticks both those boxes in terms of being one of the league's best transition forwards, an elite playmaker, that's that's going to be a really exciting uh, fit to see. Yeah, yeah. He gives them like a, a very important and much needed trigger man from high danger areas, right? Like Anders Lee has scored a ton of goals in this league over the years for Islanders, but it's in much more of like a cleaning up the mess around the net as opposed to like standing in the slot and being like a true one-shot finisher, right? So I think that's going to help them quite a bit. I, I'm very fascinated to see how all of that works out. It's ironic that I mentioned the face-offs because one of my criticisms of Horvat over the years has been because of his proficiency at faceoffs, people who don't really follow him on a day-to-day basis just assume that he's like a two-way dy- like yeah. dynamo. He's very good defensively. And he's not like a liability, but it's clear that like a lot of his value is derived from his finishing ability and from his offensive production as opposed to winning draws and just being a beast like Patrice Bergeron yeah. in his own zone. Like that's just not... He's not a guy you it, want kill- killing penalties. It's just mischaracterized. Like it's, it's, it's just clear that that's not the player he is. He's going to be 28 years old. He's been in the league for a decade. I think it's time to remove the notion that's going to be the case. And going to the honors, I've seen people being like, well, 
Like, I, I'm sure this team's going to help his defensive metrics. Like, I don't think so because no. that's not what they've been this year. But that's fine. Like, they, like, they're getting away with it because they have Ilya Sorokin. I think if he keeps scoring goals for them in the way that he has shown to be able to so far, that's kind of all they want, right? So I'm really, I'm really fascinated about that. Is there any other elements of either Horvat or kind of this Islanders perspective that you think is worth touching on? Like, we can get into the sort of um, what I think there's an entirely different discussion to be had comparing does this trade make them better and whether they should have been the team doing this trade, right? This is like, we've had this conversation about the Canucks actually, ironically, so many times where it's like, yeah, it's great that they extended Andre Kuzmenko. He's a good player who helps them right now. Should they have been the ones doing it? Probably not. And I kind of feel the same way in this case with the Islanders. For sure. I, with the Isles, I don't feel that they necessarily gave up this exorbitant amount that, oh my goodness, how how could you give up that much? Especially since a lot of national insiders seem to be speculating that uh, an extension will probably get done at some point. It's where they're at in their competitive cycle and whether they're really a contender and whether a, a team that's looking at a possible downward slope over the next year or two could justify giving up a first-round pick like that plus um, their top prospects. So, again, it's not that I think that they gave up a crazy amount of value, especially because they also offloaded Bavillier's cap hit, mm-hmm. which I think they'd been wanting to move his contract for a while. But there, I, I definitely was not a fan of a team in their position necessarily being the ones to pull the trigger. Yeah, even if Horvat improves, and the question of is it enough is, I think, a fair one, right? Like, even after the addition, I'd imagine most playoff probability models have them at like 20% chance to yeah. make the playoffs, right? They're competing with four other teams in the East for two wildcard spots and all those teams are good at various things. Yeah, and like it's, it's, Pittsburgh, it's, Washington, it's going to be an Florida. uphill climb for them. Right. And then, so you get into the question of, all right, not only is that for the rest of this year, but then are you now because of the acquisition cost backing yourself into a corner where you're just in, you're, you're picking up the tab on another long-term extension for a player in their late twenties, early thirties. And I'm very curious to see how that plays out. I've seen some speculation that, all right, if the next four to five weeks go poorly for them, Horvat could be redirected to a third party and they could recoup most of, if not all of what they paid to get him. I don't know. Do you, like, that doesn't seem like that's the motivation here, right? It Does seems it? like Lula Morello is trying to make his team better right now. It's like a last gap, last ditch effort. And he really likes, Bo- like Bohorat's a very Lula Morello type of player. And so he's just going out and he's like, all right, I don't care about the future. Like he acts quickly, he acts decisively and with no care for the future. Like we've seen that over his tenure. I mean, he's probably in trouble if they miss the playoffs anyway. Right. So from his perspective and most, most GMs, if you were not, if you or I were in that position, let's be honest, we're probably looking at that and going, let's do this. Bo Horvath's a great player. He's the best. Um, He's the most valuable trade. Other than Timo Meyer, I think. Sorry. I think Timo Meyer is, a better player, but Possibly. maybe just because of guess, position. I yeah. guess, right. I, I mean, you or you or I might uh, might feel that right, way, yeah. but widely in terms sure. of in terms of perception, um, he's been tabbed number one, right? So either way, you're looking at him as a true difference maker, and I think we would if we were in that position, we'd probably make the trade, even if it's not necessarily in the organization's best long term interests. Yeah, well, and they're kind of facing this nightmare scenario now, where I think we're going to see a lot of. 2023 protections for like any first rounder is traded the rest of the way just because of how good the top of the class is particular Conor Bedard no one wants to be giving away that pick even if there's like a one percent chance of it happening but the issue for them is I think the most realistic outcome here is they're a pretty good team they miss the playoffs just barely 
that pick winds up being in like the eight to 10 range. They wind up keeping it. And then all of a sudden next enter next year with this kind of uncertainty of this unprotected 2024 pick looming over them. And I don't think they're any bet to be better next year than they are this year. Right. And so I think that's, we, as we segue here to like why the Canucks did this trade and why we might like it from their perspective, I think betting against the Islanders in terms of their ability to win games next year is a pretty shrewd bet from the Canucks perspective. Yeah, it's not as if they have a ton of cap flexibility in the summer to make huge additions. Even right now, I was um, looking at uh, Don Lushishin's model, obviously, over, over at The Athletic, and even for this year, he his model has the Islanders at about a 55% chance of landing somewhere between the 13th to the 16th overall pick. Right. Where in that window, just missing the playoffs, and since the first-round pick is only top 12 protected, mm-hmm. um, that pick would then go to the Canucks, which if, if you can... I think that's a good scenario for the Islanders, though, in the grand scheme of things, right? Just like bite the bullet, get out of the way. No, it's not like that player would help them next year anyways. I guess it would depend on how you view this year's draft class versus next right. year's in terms of even if the Islanders are bad next year, there are so many teams that have been in this tank race. So you could think like, okay, would you rather have, let's say, a 14th overall pick this year or maybe like a, a late top 10 pick ne- next year in a potentially weaker draft class? There's right. at least that that debate. I think either scenario is pretty good for the Canucks. And that's the difference, right, is this first-round pick is the highest-ceiling asset mm-hmm. for the Canucks in this trade. This isn't like if you made a trade with Boston or whatever and you get a pick and you're like, you know this this is going to be in the mid-20s or, or, or later. And there is a significant difference between a first-round pick that could be in the middle of, uh, of that first round versus one that's going to be really, really late in terms of you look at draft pick models and, and the expected value out of, out of those uh, selections. And yeah, I mean, there is that scenario which is unlikely but also not 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 a pipe dream to where they they bottom out maybe finish bottom 12 and then they truly suck next year and the Canucks potentially strike gold in a way that we've seen a lot of uh, clubs over the year when you think back to a lot of the, a lot of them seem to involve auto whether yeah. it's been them getting uh it really the pick does, that yeah. turned into Tim Stutzler from San Jose in the or, or the Byron trade, trade or the Byron trade, trade. Yeah. um yeah well and and that's why i think not having the right to a future unprotected pick kind of holds you hostage as an organization, I think it's like the most helpless position to find yourself in, especially if things are going south, because like the one saving grace or silver lining that NHL teams have, if the season's going poorly for them is, all right, at least we're going to be rewarded with a relatively high pick. And that's going to be like the thing we take away from this season. And so being like one of the worst teams and also not watching someone else make that selection for you must be like such a just demoralizing experience. And yeah, like, you never know what happens. I'm sure that when those teams made the trade, like when the Senators made that the Matt Duchesne trade and they gave away that unprotected pick, they were probably like, hey, we're pretty good right now. Like, like Just this, came this, off Eastern Conference. Yeah, this can't league. really hurt us. And then things happen, right? Le- things change in this league very quickly. I think we mentioned how important Elias Sorokin's been to this team. Let's say he gets injured next season and misses two months or something. They're probably going to be pretty bad during that stretch, yeah. right? I think there's so much uncertainty, so much unknown that can happen in a new season that – I'd almost, if I were them, prefer to give away this year's pick and just get it over with and then deal with the rest because they've shown already. I mean, 
they gave away their first last year to acquire Romanov, right? Like they, I don't think that pick was probably going to be traded regardless. I don't think it was, it was like, we shouldn't have like penciled in. All right, this player is going to be an Islanders prospect. It was going to move one way or another. They clearly have no interest in, in building that way. And so it's scary as an Islanders fan, because I think it's pretty clear regardless of like how optimistic you are that eventually the tab is going to come due for this type of team building. I guess it's all you're, you're trying to like, prolong the inevitable and they had so many bleak seasons for such an extended period of time there that you know those two eastern conference finals they made a couple years ago just having like matt barzell and like a competent team i think has been like such a net positive for that for their fan base that i think they're probably viewing it from that perspective but yeah it's thank goodness it's very risky yeah yeah because can you imagine if they didn't have him locked up long term season goes sideways you owe potentially an unprotected first-round pick for next year, and you don't even know where Barzell lies in all of this. So thank goodness they at least got that deal done earlier. Oh, man. All right, so we've done Horvat, we've done the Islanders. We're going to pivot and talk about the Canucks' perspective of this, and then I think we'll also, at the end, talk about um, kind of the league as a whole and the fallout from it and where teams pivot. So let's take our break here, squeeze it in while we can before we get too deep in the conversation. And then when we come back, we'll do all that. You're listening to the Hockey PDO cast on the Sportsnet Radio Network. Everything Canucks before and after the games. Canucks Central with Dan Riccio and Satyar Shah. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, we're back here in the PDO cast. We're breaking down the Bull Horvat trade. So let's talk about the Canucks' perspective here. I've seen, I was actually a bit surprised to see people acting underwhelmed by the return on this trade. I'm curious for your take on how much of that do you think is just viewing it sort of through like the rose-tinted glasses of like, if you're a Canucks fan, you're probably like pretty emotionally attached to Bull Horvat, right? He's spent all nine of his NHL seasons playing for this team. He's the team's captain. Uh, A lot of fans, I'm sure, bought his jersey. Uh, there's been very few, like, memorable, fun memories and moments throughout his tenure. I would say the 2020 bubble and obviously, like, horrible worldwide circumstances, but it was this, like, one little two- to three-week reprieve at the end of the summer where the Canucks went on their only real extended run during Bull Horvath's Canucks tenure, and he was an absolute beast that postseason, right? He had 10 goals in 17 games. I think that goal he scored where he danced against Dunn is like oh, one of the most gosh. memorable Canucks goals that I can remember in a long time. And so it's clear there's like an emotional attachment involved. I wonder how much of that is dictating some of the negative reaction to what they got back. It's interesting because I actually, as time has gone, sort of continued, people have had a little bit of time to decompress. I actually think, at least from what I'm seeing, most Canucks fans are are looking at it as a pretty decent return. Yeah. That's Do you think it's maybe from the outside of like people yeah. like neutral parties or third parties where they're like, wow, that's all they got for Bull Horvat? Yeah, especially because I was looking at the history for rental forwards mm-hmm. over the in recent history. They don't typically go for that much. I mean, yeah. you look at Claude Giroux, who, and a lot of these players maybe aren't as quite as valuable as Horvat because of positional differences or whatever, but. Giroux got a 2024 first-round pick. Um, uh, Owen Tippett uh, as well. Yeah, Mark Stone went for second in a brand strong Yeah, league. obviously Pajot was a bit of an outlier where he fetched a first and a second, but 
that also came with a six-year extension signed the same day. Plus, it's also just an outlier when I looked at the, these other ones. I mean, uh, there was Kevin Hayes at the 2019 deadline who yep. was also brought in to kind of be second-line center by Winnipeg, had around 41 points in 52 games, was clipping really well. And he went for just a first-round pick in Brendan Lemieux, Lemieux yep. who's, as we know, he's, he's a fourth-line grinder, replacement-level value player. So uh, the closest comp was Matthew Shane, to me anyway, where similar sort of player where he can play center. And that year, I think Duchesne had like 27 goals and 58 points in 50 games. That that deal was interesting because... That's when he went from Ottawa to Columbus, right? Ottawa to yep. Columbus, yeah. And in that trade... There was a, it, it was compared to the Horvat return, it was lower floor but higher ceiling because the Senators got a first round pick. They got uh, Vitaly Abramov, who's B level prospect, mm-hmm. and um, and a and a second first round pick in it. But that was only condition uh, conditional on Duchesne resigning in right. Columbus, which he didn't. Yeah. Right. So out of out of out of these trades, I think Horvat has netted the highest total return out of rentals rental forwards over the last few years. Now, again, there's a case to be made that he's the most valuable player there, but that you also saw Mark Stone in there. So I actually think overall that this was a pretty fair return for the Canucks. Well, and also there's there's like a lot of uh, posturing or optics when deals like this happen, right? And so the NHL, since that Duchesne trade, got like eliminated the possibility of doing these conditional like yeah. picks in the trades where it's like if the player signs, yeah. you also get this extra pick, which I think teams were pretty comfortable doing because – especially if they knew they probably weren't going to sign the player. It's like, oh, yeah, we'll give you this oh, easy yeah. win to your fan base. It's like how in the NBA with where all these like pick swaps and trades and then teams come out and they're like, we got eight first-round picks, but in reality, you're probably not pick swapping for like four or five of those years, and yeah. it's not nearly as, as massive as it looks. And the Canucks kind of did that here where they, I hope, slightly tongue-in-cheek or like we got th- three first-round picks oh, in this yeah. trade. I, am at, I, I really hope. That is I really hope it was, it was not um, – based on on any seriousness on their part but yeah so i I think the i think the return is totally fair and i think for me and i far be it from me to to praise the canucks for for decision making and 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 moves that they've made over the past couple years it's been few and far between where i've had the opportunity to do so but i view this as a win for them because if nothing else regardless of your mileage on atu ratu as a prospect or what that first round pick is going to turn out to be they like avoided a landmine that was ahead of them in terms of going the route of taking a package built around younger players, whether it was yeah. a Brandon Carlo from Boston, as was speculated, or even like somehow I saw like Michael Rasmussen floated. It was like, it was, utter, it was nonsense. Yeah. It was like, they should not be doing this. It makes no sense for them. And so the fact that they got a package built around two futures with reasonable upside, I'd say, right, yeah. um, is a win. Because if nothing else, it signals at least that they're acknowledging the reality of their current situation and the fact that they could be taking a longer-term view here. Now, obviously, we'll see how the summer shakes out. If they just turn around and just start doing other short-sighted moves, we can revisit that. But for now, I think you can hold on to it as a, as a sliver of hope that, all right, they're finally doing the right thing here. The Canucks were also, I think, in a bit of a tough spot because, yeah, the incredible year Horvat had sort of boosted his stock as a trade asset, but it also made him a lot more expensive as a piece to potentially re-sign. Mm. Where I'm sure a lot of teams went, we'd love to add Horvat and be able to keep him beyond the season. But with the year that he's had, he's going to probably make over $8 million on his next contract. 
And regardless of the legitimate improvement we've seen in his game, we're still looking at a player who's career high before this season, which he'll obviously break, is 61 points. Right. So I'm sure a lot of teams looked at it and went, we can only really trade for this guy as a rental anyway, as opposed to we've seen other situations where teams may be able willing to give up more because they feel like they're they're gonna trade for him and resign, which I'm sure the Islanders will explore. But I don't think there necessarily would have been a, a ton of teams that could be in that spot and justify extending him long term as well, which I think hurt Vancouver's negotiation. Yeah, negotiating position. Yeah, we highlighted this on when we talked about it on Friday, right? It was like. I'm sure the Avalanche would love to add Bo Horvat right now. The Wild would be amazing on that team. The Wild cannot afford to give him his next contract. Yeah. So are they giving up premium assets to do so? Probably not. doesn't make sense for them. The Avs, I'm sure, would want to if they had them, but they just don't have the same treasure chest of futures because of the fact that they want to stand the cup last year and have made previous moves. I mean, you, you said there, uh, I'm sure the Islanders are going to explore it. Like, where, where are you at right now in terms of what the next step for Horvat here is? is with the Islanders. Like, do you think this came with, obviously he said like they haven't talked out, talked about an extension or gotten into that yet. He's going to leave that to his agent, Pat Morris. But I'm kind of curious for, I I just can't imagine that the Islanders made this trade without feeling supremely confident that it was happening. Now, if I was an Islanders fan, I'd be uneasy about what the details of that are going to be, right? Like you mentioned over eight, I think pretty clear whether it's a seven or eight year deal, it'll probably be between eight and nine million per for a player who we like, who's going to help this team, is going to be in his 30s for most of that contract. It's a pr- pretty scary proposition. Yeah, that uh, that contract is not going to age well, regardless. Well, of especially how if you, you look at their current cap friendly page, and it's a lot of money for a lot of players who are already in their 30s. Yeah, I'm with you. I can't I can't imagine that the Isles made that trade without believing that they, at least feeling confident that they'd be able to get something done. Yeah. I'm sure Lou just feels confident that he's going to get something done at all times, regardless of what it is or yeah. if it actually is based in reality. But yeah, okay, so let's stick with the Canucks here. So we both like the, the I guess, at least the direction of what yep. the package they got back is. Um, let, let's break it down further then. So they got that the top 12 protected pick for this year, which transitions to an unprotected one next year. Atu Ratu, who was the Islanders' top prospect, I don't know where the Athletic had their prospect pool relative to the Canucks. I know that at EP ringside, we had the Canucks at 28th, I believe, and the Islanders were maybe slightly ahead, uh, but not by much. But he was, for all intents and purposes, the Islanders' top prospect. So I guess he becomes the Canucks' like second-best prospect now, depending Probably on— their best. Because like, I'm not, we're not American including Pod Coles and, and, and Hog under there because they've already played enough NHL yeah. games, right? So it's—I mean, it's scraping the bottom of the barrel, but— He's also a very divisive prospect, right? Like we, I think the the mileage on like what his upside is and how attainable that is varies. I've seen people worried enough about some of the skills that like they don't think he's actually a center long term. So he's technically a center prospect now, but probably not. Um, of course, like had immense pedigree and then one of the weirdest falls from grace that I can remember during his draft year. I think the stocks trended back up. Yeah, since sure. then, right? So. It's a highly intriguing prospect, and I think where I keep coming back to is these are the types of moves the Canucks need to be making because they need to take shots on high-ceiling 
options, right? Like, I don't think getting some sort of a grinder or a third-pairing meat-and-potatoes defenseman really moves the needle at all. Even if there's a small percent chance that Atu Ratu becomes what he could be capable of, when you're at the position that Canucks are in, those are sort of the risks or calculated shots that you need to be taking. Yeah, it's interesting because I, you know, I'm, I'm not a prospect. No, neither expert, of us are. So That's I, why, yeah. I, I legitimately just turned to the NHL scouts that I trust most, just surveyed, and across the board, all of them were pretty fond of Ratu's game. It is interesting that most of them viewed him as a, and of course, these definitions can change because this label was once put on Paul Horvat, who obviously turned into much more than uh, much more than uh, than what people thought he'd be, but he's kind of viewed as a high floor, lower mm. ceiling sort of guy. Right. Where I, a lot of the scouts I spoke to were saying that he's virtually a lock to at least sort of be a third line contributor because he has so many projectable tools with the size, with his overall athleticism with his uh, high work rate. There's enough there that even if he doesn't become this top offensive force, that he's going to be an effective detail-oriented checking sort of player, which also has the heavy shot. Now, the upside there right now, at least, because again, these things can always change. Yes. Still so young. But the feelings seem to be that he'd probably top out as a second-line player if he hits hits the ceiling. The bigger question to me with, with Ratu, which you sort of brought up was whether he can excel at center long term mm. because I got a lot of the same feedback in terms of scouts wondering whether he's more of a winger long term. I mean, one NHL director of amateur scouting for a team told me that he, he likes Ratu right now a lot better at wing because of, number one, the, the skating, mm-hmm. where he, he, he actually looks pretty pretty quick once he's picked up steam yeah but it doesn't make a bit have slow to get there yeah. a little bit slow to get there and the other sort of um shortcoming that's been described is his um hockey sense the distribution aspect and whether he can truly drive a line from uh from the middle of the ice so that's going to be really interesting to sort of um to sort of follow now the positive is that the islanders were developing him as a center so mm-hmm. when, even when he was called up played at center Played center at Bridgeport, I believe, in the American League. So from the Canucks' perspective, you're going to give him a long look at center. You're 100% given the team's need down the middle. You you sort of need him to be. He's going to have a lot of opportunities to that. fail before they move him to the 100%. Yeah. Um, but it is going to be interesting to see whether that's, you know, where he ultimately fits positionally. Yeah. Well, that debate of, like, whether you can improve the skating enough to allow everything else to fall into place is so interesting and it's ironic because that was like Bo Horvat's yeah. whole thing right it was like all right he's gonna be reliable like he's gonna be a good defensive player who like has a high floor but does he have the skating ability and skating chops to really kind of flourish offensively and then it's funny how his yeah. career has has wound up unfolding so yeah I think there's reason to be optim- optimistic there for sure neither of us with the caveat neither of us are our prospects so we kind of rely on what we hear from others who who put the more video work in for for these players but yeah, I think here's the thing. For the Canucks, there's no quick fix here. And we keep saying that, right? Like it's whether it's a prospect tool, whether it's the financial flexibility, whether it's how much draft capital they've mortgaged to to have this sort of mediocre team for years now. The idea that adding any sort of young player in this trade that would have been like a 24, 25 year old who's already ready to step in your lineup on day one, the whole question was, what is that accomplishing? Because you're not getting the type of caliber of player who's going to legitimately move the needle 
from day one, and this team is nowhere near good enough to for like any other sort of player to really make a meaningful difference. And so pushing the ball down the road and giving more developmental years and chances for players to hit whatever ceiling they have is I think the right way to go about this. And so that's why that's why I keep coming back. I just, I, I I like this trade for them. I, I, I really think, you know, we heard teams we've heard teams trickle out. I'm very curious if we hear any actual offers that might have been out there. There's been some frustration from other NHL teams, yeah. kind of sour grapes that they felt like they didn't have a fair shake in at least presenting their best offer for Bo Horvat services. One thing I also want to say, because I saw the Kevin Reeks report that yes. uh, the Canucks didn't shop the Islanders' uh, offer around. Well, I'm actually, spoiler, I'm, I'm kind of working on a, on a oh, story okay. in general about the art of how deals sort of get done in the NHL. So I've, I've had a chan- had the chance to talk. Does it usually start with like an email saying you up? Question mark? Uh, unfortunately not. No, okay. But some, some, some of the stories are pretty funny. But anyway, like, so I saw that and I was like, one of the one of the pieces of feedback that I got from executives was a lot of times when there's an offer made, there's like it's well known that if you give a team a, ch- a chance in a long time to sort of dwell on an offer that they're going to shop it around, mm-hmm. that a lot of times when a buying team is, is making an offer, they'll, they'll sometimes be like, you've got X amount of time to say yes or no. And if we hear that you've shot this at all, we're taking it off the table. Right. So it sort of, it you know, I don't think... It's like a take a, it or leave it type of deal. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So it ends up, I'm sure a lot of people look at that report and think, oh, stupid Canucks, they didn't even yeah. shop that offer around. They just accepted it right away. I'm sure it wasn't that simple because any team in that situation, if they had the opportunity, would obviously try and shop it around. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I, I don't, I genuinely like, you know, let's give them benefit of doubt here. I, I, I don't believe that there was another offer out there that would have been as futures heavy that would have provided as much upside or at least intrigue as this one. Like I, 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 I'm all for bashing them. Right. And I'm all for like being like, Oh, they didn't do their due diligence or, Oh, they messed this one up classic. But I I really think in this case, like this was probably the best they're going to get. Now you can make the argument that if they had waited closer to the deadline, maybe someone, something either opens up or someone gets desperate enough to opt their offer. You could certainly make that case. Like there's still four weeks ahead. But you could similarly turn around and be like, well, you're playing a dangerous game with Bo Horvat out there playing 20-plus yeah. minutes in these games. What if he comes down with an injury and all of a sudden you're just stuck with him? Like, that's that would be a nightmare scenario. So I, I'm all for it. And then, you, of course, you incorporate the human element of by all accounts. Like, I think Bo probably wanted resolution here, wanted this done, do right by him. So I'm all for, like, doing it in terms of the timing. And I, I, I find it hard to believe that there was something better out there that they kind of missed out on. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to be interested to see because – I think we'll, I think we'll see, I think we'll see some stuff trickle out. I think, I think, I think there are teams that felt that they had a better offer, but that's obviously their perception of it. And they're probably sour that they didn't get Horvat. So it's a biased perspective. So I'm not going to sit here and I think a lot of those offers probably would have included taking on more bad money. Mm -hmm. And so it's also interesting how Beauvillier has been sort of framed as part of this deal right yeah i i view it it was i mean i'm not sure i'm sure like you know they're saying all the right things in terms of liking the player he's been a productive nhl in the past he's still what he turns 26 this summer so like it's not a lost cause by any means and i think a lot of his uh plummeting stock has been the fact that his shooting percentage has gone in the toilet the past couple years as well and so i actually think it's a pretty reasonable bet from the canucks perspective to be like, all right, this guy has one year left on his deal. He's expiring next year. He's 26. If we put him in a top six role, especially 
in Pedersen minutes, hopefully. Yeah. Score some goals, put some points up on the board. Maybe we can get another asset from him between now and next year's trade deadline, retain some money. I think that's certainly in play here. But he's also like, I think it's completely found money from that perspective. Like, I, I don't view this as like, Beauvillier is going to be on this team for the next however many yeah. years. This is, I think, purely like a reclamation project, which is one they should be taking. Yeah, it's interesting because I've wrestled with this one and, and tried to figure out how I feel about Beauvillier in this deal. Just because I would feel so much better about this if they had first, say, been able to find a way to, you know, either either they cashed in on Kuzmenko and, oh, God, and got yeah. a nice return for him, and then Beauvillier, you're looking at him. As, and then just put okay, him in those minutes. Put him in those minutes. Or, you know, they've previously found a destination for like a Garland or a Besser. Because now I look at it and... It's it's interesting because if you're on team rebuild and you're like I don't care what this team looks like next season I don't care if they're competitive which is the outlook you should have mm. if you're the Canucks then you don't mind Beauvillier in this deal at all but if you're of the mindset which the Canucks actually may be in that they need to turn this around and be competitive next season then the opportunity cost of that cap space looms large because it's more money committed right. to wingers and you're looking at a scenario where, like I was crunching the math yesterday, they've got around six point three million in cap space. Now again, there are factors, other you know trades, buyouts, whatever mm-hmm. that, that's going to happen. The actual number will be higher, but with that amount, you've got to replace Horvat and then probably your three top four defensemen short. Which is to say, you don't really have any flexibility to meaningfully improve this team for next season barring unforeseen creativity that we haven't seen from this organization before uh, outside of maybe the Travis Hamannick trade so it's interesting from that dynamic where I'm like I don't I don't hate Bavillier's inclusion in this deal because again I'm taking the longer view yes. and I agree in the sense that you can hopefully resurrect his value maybe get, for, get maybe get a chip for him but then there's the other side of it where I wonder what management's play here is where if they want to push to be competitive next season and this quick turnaround, then they would have been much better off with that $4.1 million in cap space, being able to invest it in a center or a defenseman or use it some other way. Yeah. I'm, I'm choosing to view it through the lens of it's good that they're taking on that four point, whatever million, because it prevents them from spending it on someone in an ill-advised manner in free agency. <laughs> That's actually true. It, it almost like, it's like, it's like the, the money ball thing where you just take away a player from a coach so that he can't play them. This is like taking yeah. away the money from management. So it's like, oh, you, you, can't, you can't spend, spend this. this. You know what? We've allocated this for, <laughs> I thought you were going to say though, that um, I had someone messaging and be like, it would be very Canucks if over the next calendar year, they did sort of rehabilitate Beauvillier's stock and value and then we're like, oh, we actually kind of like him, and then wind oh, up yeah. wind up signing him to his next deal. And I was like, that would be very Canucks. But I think ultimately they already have so much money invested in the wing that they really might like they might spare themselves that pain. I th- I I just you have to take the long term view here. I really do not see. Yeah. You you mentioned like they need to show like un unforeseen creativity. I think it would take like pure magic, yeah, to have a competitive team based on how few resources are available and, and the talent already in place. Like it's just, you have to take a long-term view here in mind. And that's kind of guiding my optimism surrounding yeah. this trade. I think it pushes them further in that direction. I think if this is a precursor to like following 
moves elsewhere. That's alarming, but I will cross that bridge when the uh, when the day comes. No, I guess we'll take this win for uh, for Canucks fans. They need it. They need it. They need it. It's been a, it's been a long road. Um. All right. Is there anything else on this trade, or do you wanna do you wanna wrap up here? I'm trying to think. Um. I mean, the market here is interesting, right? Because it takes a center off the board. I really don't think this impacts the Meyer market much. I think that sort of remains yeah. already what it was. If you look at the remaining centers, it's like O'Reilly, Taves. Henrique potentially, although he's more of a winger, and then like Nick Bukestad. Like it, it's, there's is Barbashev in play. Barbashev's in play, but he's also I think believe I more believe he's winger, he's kind yeah. of like Henrique, like he's been playing wing. Yeah. Um. So yeah, I mean it's a pretty limited market, which is good if you have one of those guys, you can probably leverage it into more now than you could yesterday. Um. But other than that, I think I think we've done a pretty good job here yeah. of uh of outlining all the key considerations. All right, promote some stuff. Yeah. So. Because you, you were up till you were up till some ungodly hours writing last night. Yeah, so. I was up until uh, 2.30 writing um, a full breakdown, five thoughts on kind of the package the Canucks got and really diving into the weeds uh, of, uh, of a lot of this. So that's uh, that went up and going to be pumping out a, a lot more ahead of the, the deadline because, boy, I don't, uh, I don't think the Canucks are done there. Good. Good. I hope so too. Uh, this was fun, man. I'm glad you uh, you answered the bat signal and came in. This was the first of hopefully many of these types of trade breakdown shows. And who knows if the Canucks remain feisty, maybe you and I can uh, can do some more of those. Harm, thanks for coming in. Thank you to the listeners for checking out the PDO cast. Uh, we're going to be back tomorrow with more. Uh, so until then, thank you for listening to the Hockey PDO cast streaming on the Sportsnet Radio Network.